What does the future of drilling hold? And more importantly, what can we do today in order to see those gains in the future realized? My name is Dr. Anthony Konya, and I'm with academyblasting.tv. academyblasting.tv. What we're going to spend today talking about is where is drilling going in the future, specifically drilling for the blasting communities. And in order to really understand this, we'll be taking a deep dive back all the way to 1627, and we'll be going forward into time to where we're at today and what the upcoming technologies in the industry are that'll change all of our lives forever. We'll explore questions like, how can we ensure that drill logs are continuous, providing good data, and go into accurate loading sequences for a blasting crew? We'll discuss full automation on the drill site, how drones can be used in it, and the most important question that's on everybody's mind. Will man ever be taken fully out of the picture of drilling? Let's start by going back into 1627. In 1627, we had the first blast ever at a gold mine in Hungary. And on this day, we had a group of men go underground, and they were faced with a very new and compelling task. And that was, could they use black powder to actually break rock? Now, it's important to understand that we never truly in humanity have just leapt to a brand new boundary. And black powder originally started being used in muskets and military munitions. And one of the things miners found early on, some of the reports are even the late 1500s, is that if they packed black powder into a large ball, think of like a cannonball, they could roll it down a drift with a fuse lit, and when that would go off, it would shake the drift enough that some scales would fall, especially the really loose rocks that were all over the ribs in the back. And this was great for them because it allowed them to more safely mine areas. And think, this was late 1500s. So from the late 1500s until 1627, we know that this method of explosive scaling, we can call it, was being used. On top of that, the miners would sometimes, it's been reported, fill small cracks with black powder and break off small slabs of rock. Now this was again mostly for scaling in larger pieces of rock, but you can think that this started this natural progression. And there was a man by the name of Wendell that decided he was going to try actually breaking rock. And so he had his crew come in on that day. They drilled holes into the rock face. They put six-inch charges of black powder into those holes, and they ignited them. And everyone cleared out. The ground shook. There was a massive rush of air. And at the end of the day, they went back in there, and they found that the rock had broken beautifully. This was the first blast that was ever conducted. We have to really pay attention here, though, because what often is overlooked is how those holes were drilled. Now, what they did at the time, and this goes back all the way to the ancient Egyptians, is they take pieces of metal rod and hammers, and they pound them into the ground. And this would create small boreholes. Now, in places like ancient Egypt, they'd soak wood in water that was in that borehole. It would generate pressure and split large pieces of rock. So drilling was done but it was a very manual, difficult task. And one of the reasons that there hadn't been a lot of improvement was, first off, we didn't have the advanced technology and mechanics we do today. But on top of that, there really wasn't a need as it wasn't done on a massive scale yet. Well, when this blast was successfully completed, everything changed. The Hungarian Mining Tribunal went out and they started disseminating this information all through Hungary, and quickly other European countries picked up on this knowledge. And now, 
everybody was drilling. Everybody needed to drill because they had to get these boreholes in place for this black powder to effectively break the rock. It's reported that this black powder saw somewhere between a 10 and 20 times increase for production and mining at that day. So this was huge. And the most time-consuming portion of that was the drilling, which is still very common in many mine sites today. So let's take a look at the drilling back in the day. Now, some of you guys may know about single jack and double jack drilling. They do still today in the mucking competitions around the world. And this is where they have a hammer and they're holding a steel and they're smashing that steel with a hammer to drive a hole. Double jack is where one person's holding that steel, oftentimes with a leather strap, and the other person's using a heavier sludge hammer to pound that steel in and create that hole. And this was very common to what was done back in the day. If we look at old text, we can find productivity rates and everything for this. Now, in the late 1600s, a new type of drill was invented. And this was a little bit different in the fact that it relied on gravity. So instead of a man actually striking steel and boring that hole, this heavy weight would be picked up about three to four feet and dropped onto the back of a drill steel. For those of you that know about drilling today, this is very similar to percussive drilling that we use, where we're striking that steel over and over and over in order to bore a hole into the rock while slowly turning that steel. And this is exactly what they started doing in the late 1600s. There's only one problem. It could only be used for purely vertical holes. So from that point all the way till about 1640, there really wasn't a lot of new drilling technologies that came about. And in 1840, we had a drastic change in drilling occur. This is when we saw the first rotary drills. Now, a rotary drill works by turning of a drill steel and causing breakage of that rock. There's no percussive blow to it. There's just a constant pressure. Now, back in 1840, this was a very slow and tedious process. It was primarily used in coal mining, and it was a manual hand crank rotary drill. Then we had everything change in 1844, and a new age of drilling dawned. And this is where we had mechanized drilling occurring. So we actually had machines now coming in and actually drilling these holes. Now this started with pneumatic drilling, or applying compressed air to a drill to strike that steel. For those of you that know about drilling, this is still what we're doing today. A lot of these concepts come from 1844, when that first type of drilling was used. Now, from 1844 onward, we didn't really have any major changes in the drilling environment. We had some minor changes coming and going, and obviously there was always improvements going. But it really didn't change dramatically at one point all the way till about the year 2000. Somewhere in 2000 is when we had a brand new age start. So let's take a look at what the ages of drilling actually are. From 1627 until 1844, we had what we call the age of man. And this was because from during this time period, we had solely man-powered drilling. Everything required extensive human labor working in very difficult, strenuous conditions. And like I said, in 1844, we finally started mechanized drilling. And so from 1844 all the way to 2000 is about when we had that age of mechanization. Now, this age of mechanization 
was pronounced by lots of small gains throughout the years. And it relied more on making sure the machines could tolerate more wear, get larger diameter bits, drill deeper, drill more accurately, and of course, drill faster. Because faster drilling while maintaining accuracy meant more productivity on the drill. It was a better drill then, and they could sell this a lot faster. And in here, we had lots of really unique drills. Uh, back in the taconite mines in Minnesota, they used to have what's called a jet pierce, and this would have actually a large jet engine on it that would burn away these hard rocks because normal rotary drills could not provide these holes. Now today, those have been switched out with rotary drills. There was also experimentation done with laser drilling where they'd actually try to burn holes in the rock. And a lot of the problems that occurred there was the dust that would be coming out from those burnings would end up interfering with the laser and stopping it from actually being able to drill further. There was even explosive drilling tried for missions to, let's say, the moon or to Mars, where they would use shaped charges and try to break in a borehole, put explosives in there, and spring them out. And some of that work was pioneered by Dr. Calvin Konya at the Missouri University of Science and Technology. Now, none of those methods really caught on, and we still have two major types of drilling, and that is percussive and rotary drilling. One is that sole pounding mechanism we saw all the way back in 1627 and even back to 4000 BC when some of the Egyptians were using it. And the second is rotary drilling, which came about in 1840. And those are probably, at least today, the types of drilling methods we're going to see and anywhere into the near future, those are likely going to be the major methods. Way into the distant future, we may see some methods like explosive drilling or laser drilling come out, uh, but those are probably highly unlikely in the next 20, 30, or even 50 years, just due to some of the complexities with them. So in 2007, after most of these drilling gains had been realized, growth in drilling started to stagnate somewhat. And really the next major objective then became the age of automation. Now, Automation really didn't start in 2007, but this is when some of that base legwork was put in to actually begin autonomizing these drilling systems. So with this age of automation, let's take a look at some of the things that have been created already to this point. There are companies out there currently that can help get a drill to a location. Maybe let's say your driller on site drives up to that spot. You hit a button and that drill will sort of align itself to make sure that it's on the exact location that you want to drill. That started during this age of automation. There's other drilling systems now that, especially on larger mine sites, it can drive the drill itself, it can sit down exactly where you want a borehole, and again, start drilling that hole. And these are huge advantages really for one major reason, and is that they address inaccuracies in drilling. And so we have to understand what are the major things throughout the years that we've had to combat. One of those is inaccuracy. Inaccuracies come in really two major ways. The first one is collar deviation. And this means the drill doesn't line up exactly where you want it. So imagine that you've laid out a spot, you want your drill to go right there. Let's say you have a plan that you have a 10 foot burden on that hole. Well, that driller accidentally puts the hole two feet further back. Now you have a 12 foot burden. Your blast can be extremely poor just by increasing that burden by that two feet, especially if you're already towards that maximum burden limit that we would establish. So this collar deviation is huge, and normally we allow somewhere around one to two times the borehole diameter and deviation. That's sort of an acceptable range there. Now, 
with today's systems, the automation that's already taken place, we can dramatically eliminate this, if not completely remove it. And the best part is today, we can quantify this data much better than we ever have. You know, in the past, if an entire shot was moved off of its mark a little bit, we'd never know that. But today, we can use GPS surveying equipment and figure out the location of every borehole, track this in AutoCAD, and we can then figure out exactly where those line up compared to our planned holes. The second type of inaccuracy is what we call borehole deviation. Now, anyone that's ever been out on a job site has likely seen where drill holes sort of wander and they're turned halfway down a hole, let's say on a pre-split blast. And you wonder how does that happen? And you have to understand that these drills have very long steels and these long steels are extremely slender. They have, if we calculate like a slenderness ratio, they have uh, a very great ability to actually wander in that hole, especially when we're applying a lot of force. And when they hit a different geologic contact, they'll start to turn and they can go in any direction. They can spiral, they can go in just one direction or multiple. Um, but this is a big problem we have and today, this is getting better, but this is gonna be an area that we're gonna look for manufacturers to dramatically improve on in the future because today this is one of our biggest problems in drilling and can cause extremely negative effects when we go into our blast design. Now, we've also changed some of the automation in other ways. One of those is the fact that we need accurate drill logs. There's no project, there's no mine site, there's no construction site that drill logs do not help what is going on. Now, let's investigate what a drill log is. It's really nothing more than a piece of paper that says how hard the rock was in all of those spots. Whether we're at a construction project or a mine site, we normally have some core logs or core samples available. And we can estimate with a few of these over large areas of rock what that rock is approximately like. But did you know just a small six inch band of gravel that much gravel alone can completely destroy our shop. There's a project recently where we were pre-splitting a line and there was a small six inch seam of gravel. Now what happened is the gases from that explosive traveled into that seam and it lifted a rock that was 100 feet long by 40 feet wide by 30 feet in depth. It lifted it up, it turned it about three degrees and dropped it back down in its exact spot. Now, and you could easily see this because the boreholes weren't lined up, they didn't go straight up and down. We had part of it going up and then we had an offset of about three inches. Now, you'd think, well, that's not that big of a deal. The wall still came out well. This was a major problem because it was in a very important Army Corps of Engineers lock. And so this had to be fixed because this was compromised, this could potentially compromise the integrity of the site. And this was an extremely expensive blast to have to fix here. So we need to make sure that we're properly identifying what happens in the ground. Cores do a great job telling us before we get there what we may want to expect, but there's nothing that beats a drill log. And this gives us the ability, instead of sampling a few holes over, let's say a mile stretch of roadway we're blasting over, or over a mine site, to sampling each and every individual holes. For those of you working at a mine site, you guys normally are familiar with this already when, especially the metal mines, when you're testing some of those cuttings that are coming up to see what type of grade ore you have. We need to do the same thing in blasting, but instead of necessarily testing the cuttings, we need to test the penetration rate of the drill. 
And that's one of the great new pieces of technology that's come out. It's whole loggers. And what these do is they give us the ability to, while the drilling is actually taking place, automatically monitor and store what the penetration rate is at different intervals. I've seen some of these that are four inches. I've seen some of these that are half an inch or a centimeter, and you get a breakdown for every piece of that on what the penetration rate there is. And this is great. It gives us a lot of great data on the site. The important thing here is we need to make sure we get it to our blasters or our blasting crew so they can then go and modify the blast design based on what we're getting here. Now, so far, these systems that we've looked at have given us a lot better results, especially on the blasting end. These were sort of the easy pieces that most of the drilling companies could grab. And today we're even seeing some expansions in drill logs. And my prediction is that in the future, we're gonna see stuff where these can actually detect some of the rock properties in the drilling. Um, things like being able to pick up compressive strength or Young's modulus based on different formulations that we can run with the data that's available to us from the drilling. But the real question is where do we go from here? And that's gonna be really in fully autonomous drilling systems. So what we're looking at in the future here is we're gonna be having drills that are operated by someone in basically a control booth telling them where boreholes are. And these drills are gonna be able to pull up to the actual site. There's some mines today that are already employing these type of systems with either no operator in the cab or having an operator in there to actually drill the holes. We're also in the future gonna be able to go about actually drilling these holes fully without having to have someone there. And the big thing is these drills at some point my prediction is will be implemented with systems to monitor borehole deviation as they drill and automatically correct for that by changing the pressure on different ends of that steel. And now we can get straighter boreholes. We can completely eliminate the collar deviation using a GPS system or reduce it to a few centimeters. And we'll be able to see what that rock is. And this gives us great data then in the blasting process to really start optimizing that blasting. This is all part of that mine-to-mill optimization approach or something that we need on a construction project to avoid fly rock towards nearby residences. So the big question then becomes for us, will man ever be completely taken out of drilling? And my answer to this is no. I don't think we'll ever completely remove a operator from that drill cap. Now let me explain what I mean by that. There's a project I'm recently working on, and in this project we have a man-built platform overhanging water, and a drill has to go over the edge of that platform to drill through casings that are placed by a diver and into different areas of this rock. Now, I don't think in the next 20, 30, 50 years, we're gonna see enough automation that will be able to replace that type of drilling. But in things like mine sites or large construction projects where we can set up these GPS systems and we can do all the planning and everything, I think that's where there's a big potential. Now, this also means most sites are probably gonna to need to increase their overall drill and blast engineering departments. And this is because they're gonna to need to actually set up a lot of these plans. You know, a typical construction project, we may have just boreholes drawn out or sometimes they're placed in AutoCAD in about the area they're supposed to go. And a blaster may come out and spray paint them on the ground and a driller comes in and punches those holes. If we're gonna get rid of the driller in the cab, that means that we need to really lock in exactly where these holes go. So we're gonna have to use things like drones, like LIDAR scanners or photogrammetry in order to capture what that bench looks like. And that way we can go and actually place in there where those holes need to be. 
This is also really exciting for the blasting prospects because it allows us to then really control our burdens, our spacings, and understand what we're doing and how we're doing everything out there. There won't be as much guesswork, and it should lead to much better blasting down the road. But it's going to require a larger concerted effort in the engineering stages and the instrumentation of blasts than a lot of projects have today. I don't think drillers will ever be completely removed from the job site, though, in difficult and specialty situations. For example, in applications such as the one I was talking about, where we're drilling off of a platform in various places with a diver, there we need to make sure that we have the ability to place holes as we go. We need to make sure that we have somebody operating that to ensure safety of everyone on the site. And so I think what we're going to see here in the future is going to be less and less actual drillers being hired, but the ones that are still there are going to be specialty drillers. They're going to be working in high-end applications, and they're going to be working in difficult projects. They're going to be working on the tricky situations, the things that we can't necessarily easily automate or code up in a computer, things that are difficult to quantify, or in areas where we need that little bit of human touch. The other big question then comes in, how do we control and monitor rock and rock falls on benches above the drill? You see, this becomes a big problem because for me, when I'm going out on a bench, I can look up and see, is there something I'm concerned with? We can do a GPS survey, let's say with a drone, and see if at that present time there's any problems. Now, a drill probably doesn't need to worry about rock in the same way I do. I have to worry about much smaller rock because that can injure me much more than a large drill would be damaged if a small rock fell on it. We're going to need to make sure that we can abide by and monitor in safe conditions. And so again, this is going to take more instrumentation. While we may offset some of those drillers in the cabs and reduce some of that labor cost in the operational cost, we may see more capital expenditures on the instrumentation. And really for drilling and blasting companies and mining companies, I think one of the big areas right now that you have to be advancing in, in order to prepare for the future of drilling is you have to get your instrumentation plans down. You have to start making those blast plans that are detailed and preparing for that future of drilling where we're going to be able to plug all of this into a computer program. It'll run and have drills automatically go out onto the bench. We're probably talking about somewhere between 10 to 20 years from now that these systems are widely employed in the industry. But pay attention because some sites, especially some larger mine sites, are already using these type of systems today. And that ends the story of drilling. We've now gone from 1627 to modern day and well into the future on what type of systems and drills we may see coming out. Guys, I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I hope it helped teach you something that either about the history of drilling or about what's to come in the future. Make sure to give us a five-star rating if you enjoyed this on any of the platforms that you're listening to it. That really goes a long way in helping us get out there and reach other people in the community. Also, make sure to subscribe. We have a lot of new things coming out. We'll be talking about the future of initiation systems, explosives, and blast design, starting from, again, that 1627 when that first blast went off all the way into the future. On top of this, we have interviews planned with the top minds in the industry, so we'll be bringing a lot of great content to you over the upcoming months. Make sure to subscribe. That way you get our podcast every time a new one drops. And again, give us that five-star rating. Thanks again, and this is Anthony Konya signing off for academyblasting.tv. Academyblasting.tv